Good morning. morning. Welcome to Faith Church. It's good to see everybody this morning. If you don't mind grabbing the fellowship pads, they're on the inside aisles. You can sign your name and send them down the row. Send them back. Take a look at who's sitting with you and anybody that you do not recognize or haven't seen in a while. Please be sure to greet after the service. And if you are a guest with us this morning, welcome. We are very glad that you're here. In those fellowship pads, there are cards. So if you're a guest and you'd like some more information about things that are going on here at Faith Church, you can fill that out, drop it in the offering later in the service, or you can drop it off at the Connect Center. And then also those cards can be used if you have anything particular you would like for us as a church to be praying out, fill that out. So a few announcements this morning. Children's Recognition and Promotion Sunday is coming up next Sunday, September 1st. So children that are in first and then fifth grade are going to receive their Bibles from Faith Church during this service and the third service. So be, um, be aware of that, that that's going to be going on. But then also, as we're moving in this direction, be praying for these kids as they're going to, uh, many of them have Bibles, but this is, I, rem- I remember getting my first Bible when I joined the church many years ago, and I don't know that I still have it, but it was with me for a long time, and it had a lot of meaning. So just be praying for these kids as they receive that. And then with that, all grade school children are going to be promoted to their current school level starting next week. So we're kicking off our our fall semester starting next week. Then secondly, forgiveness class is coming up. So that's going to start September 8th, so in two Sundays. Jim Murphy and Jeff Jeffrion are going to be teaching this 10-week class. You can register at the Connect Center um, for either the 915 or the 1045 class. So they will be doing two classes, one during this hour and one, one during the third hour. So to, to register, you do need to purchase a book. It's $10, and then you will read the first chapter before they meet for the first time on August the 8th. And there's more information about that in the bulletin. I'm sorry, September. Thank you. September 8th. What did I say? August? Okay, yeah. It started already. (laughs) There is more information in your bulletin if you want to see more details. And then lastly, on the Oregon, Del Whitler's 92nd birthday, August 19th, coming up. So I'm going to invite you to stand as we enter into worship this morning. will praise the power and majesty of his name.
before we did the call to worship, I just came right in and started it, and I didn't give a heads up to our, uh, to our team up there. And in so doing, I made an unnecessary and actually a condescending comment that uh, was distracted to worship. And I apologize for that. So as we enter into worship and continue in worship, let the one who is of all power be the one who is our focal point. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge.
wonderfulness and grace. Lord Jesus, this is, this is what draws us in. It's the reason that we come is because of the magnificence of your character that is maybe most beautifully experienced by us as we encounter your grace. One who covers our wrongdoings, who covers our sin and our selfishness, and who paves the way for us to be made right before your Father who is holy and just and true. And this grace you have given to us that you've accomplished on our behalf, you've now given us your spirit so that this grace might not just be a concept, it might be an abiding reality for us. And so we ask as we continue in worship this morning that the reality of this marvelous grace would sink deeper into not just our minds, but our very being, our heart, and would transform everything about us, would grow in us a sense of grace towards others and humility towards others so that we might tell the good news of our great King to others. We pray this all in your name. Amen.
Let's turn to Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, and today we're going to be starting uh, in verse 10. The picture that you see up there on the screens is one that I uh, used when I actually candidated and presented to you the process that we go through at Interim Pastor Ministries, because this is what uh, many a church feels down through the years. This is what we individually feel, not just congregationally, uh, at various times through the years. It's one by Rembrandt. It's one of my favorites. It's, It's his only known seascape, and it's unusual in that it doesn't focus on Christ as Rembrandt does in all of his other gospel scenes, but on the disciples, on the disciples who are, you know, bravely struggling against the wind and the waves, and there's this look of terror on their face. And I don't know about you, but I can relate to that look of terror uh, down through the years, which it's often the way it is. And, uh, but they, though they don't realize it, they're just too wrapped up in the what's going on to see. You see the sky up there, the parting of the, of the clouds and the blue sky that's ahead of them, that's always ahead of us in the hands of his providence, no matter what we're going through. I love it because it pictures how we can often feel. How we can often feel in this, you know, this heart-stopping journey of our life with Jesus. And for the hope that it offers, that it reminds us of as we look to the future. I love it because though uh, Christ may feel invisible like he is almost invisible up there in the picture, uh, he's got it. He's invisible like an anchor, uh, like the everlasting arms that are underneath us, like uh, Moses said. You know, those disciples up there remind me of a dog that we had when I was in high school uh, in Singapore. His name was Ambo, and that was short for Ambrosio. And uh, he, he was named for a friend of ours in the Philippines. And no, we loved that friend. It's not that we hated him. We had to make sure we didn't mention the name of our dog when we went to visit uh, him, but... Uh, we, he, he, he was a cross between a beagle and a fox terrier, a very lively dog, or, or rather he was anyway a fearless dog until we got to Singapore. I don't know for sure what it was, but I do know that uh, to get there, we had to put him in the cargo bay, which was like thunder, I've heard. Uh, wasn't very well insulated. And while we were in the passenger section, and I don't know if it was the roar of the engines or what, but from the time we got off the plane in Singapore to the day he died, he was terrified of thunder. Never before was it a problem, but the slightest rumble, you know, somewhere in a distance that we couldn't even hear, sent him to my side and he'd be uh, shaken like a leaf and it's like it triggered this post-traumatic stress, which often happens with us. It can do it even if we didn't have some experience in our past that the present reminds us of. We never taught him to heal, but at those times, I'm telling you, wherever, wherever you went, he was like a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. <laughs> he was right there, and he wouldn't just be at my side. He'd be pressing against my legs. Generally, he'd be, be between my legs, even as I walked around the house. You could almost predict the weather uh, by his shaking. It could be a clear blue day, but if there was a storm brewing somewhere in the distance, he could not enjoy that clear blue day. You'd know it. It was an unfortunate characteristic. For one thing, sometimes the storms would completely miss us. and the, Usually they would. But the very thought of them would ruin his day. 
And for another thing, even when they didn't miss us, even during the the monsoon rains that would come every afternoon for month after month in Singapore, he was always perfectly safe, right? He was warm and dry and never once did they hurt him. So all that fear was for nothing. But the dark clouds of the future were so real to him, yet so powerful over him that they controlled his life. Ever felt that way? You know, it probably didn't happen to you on a trip in a cargo bay of some jetliner, but many of us have had some traumatic experience somewhere in our past, often over some period of time, and from those days forward, we end up shaken like the leaf at the prospect of anything that's similar. And the dark clouds of the futures, they're so real to us, yet so powerful over us, they can control our lives, even without a traumatic experience. I don't know if you've noticed, but more often than not, the focus of our fear is almost always on the future. It usually is something about uh, the future that we fear. And we're going to learn today that the summary of it all, which we'll get to at the end, is how do you spell fear? You spell fear, F-E-A-R, false evidence, you may have heard this, appearing real. The fear of the future is generally caused by false evidence appearing real. For one thing, it isn't real yet, and yet look at how it ruins the present. And for another thing, more often than not, what you never fear, uh, what you fear almost never becomes real, at least oftentimes the That's the case. It's like someone said, I worry because it works. Almost everything I worry about never happens. (laughs) But even if it does happen, even if your fears are realized, and this is going to be the bottom line of of the focus of our passage for today, even if it gets worse uh, than you can possibly imagine, still, if you are a child of God, it is F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real. And it's false evidence because you are in the arms of God's providence. And so through it all, he says, do not fear. Through the worst storm of life. I'm here. You might not see me, but I am there. And I'll get you there because I am sovereign in and through it all. All that is in Christ's letter to the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2. And it starts in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy of of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. This is a word for many of you today. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, to, uh, I'm not sure what happened there. 
Well, they'll work on it. To get our bearings for the verse for today where we left off last time, we'll need to unpack uh, a bit of verse 8. I'm going to review briefly because we're all like ambos at the drop of the hat and we need to ground ourselves as Christ has done with them leading up to what we're going to do today. So let's remind ourselves of the context. With Smyrna, uh, I think somehow that got to the, okay. With Smyrna, if you remember, he begins by saying, I am the first and the last, which we saw, this was a number of weeks ago, is a reference to some of the most encouraging verses in the Old Testament. In fact, they're all through the Bible, in which we see Roman numeral one, this was our first message on Smyrna, the scope of his sovereignty, which we really need to review for a bit to tee up our verses for today. He says, I am the first and the last. They, uh, this comes in comforting passages like Isaiah 44, 6. This phrase, I am the first and the last, for those who know their scripture should remind them of all sorts of different places in the Bible. It's like Isaiah 44, 6, which he spoke to his people when they were really uh, afraid. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. And there is no God beside me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them them the things that are coming. I can declare the things that are coming. Can any of your other gods do that? Who are you resting in? I'm declaring the miracle of the clear blue that's after the storm. Let them declare the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? I'm in it. I've got it. I know where we're going. I know where you've come from. I'm through it all. And are you not my witnesses? Is there any God beside me or is there any other rock through whatever you're going through? I know of none. When he calls himself the first and the last, he's saying, he's saying, uh, history is not outside of me. I'm in and through it all from the beginning to the end. History is, as someone said, H-I-S-S-T-O-R-I, right? His story. And so is your biography. It's wrapped up in his story. He's saying, I've got it. I'm sovereign in and through it all from the beginning to the end and to everything in the middle. Is there any other rock on which you can stand? The book of Revelation begins and ends with the same phrase, I am the first and the last. The whole book proves that he knows what he's doing because Revelation goes from unbelievable tribulation and God's people torture and martyrdom to glorification sweeps it all up. And so at the beginning of the book in Revelation 1-7, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I was trembling like Ambo. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And then at the very end, uh, after John's description of heaven where he proves that he's in and through it all for a greater good. Christ says, I am the Alpha, and here we are at the Omega. Look back and see. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
Revelation 22, 13. He's talking about the scope of his sovereignty, which is what the book of Revelation is all about. And of course, we need to be reminded of this because when it comes to the scope of our lives, we often catch just like these broken strokes of the, of the poetry that he's creating, of this incredible saga that will end in glorifying and being glorified for all eternity. We catch just broken strokes of that. So with the church at Smyrna, first he offers comfort by reminding them of the scope of his sovereignty. And then he offers comfort, the comfort of his sympathy and of his empathy, if you remember. He begins by explaining his sympathy when he says, I am the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. That is, he cares about how we're feeling because he's been there. He's dead and come to life. He's been through the whole gamut of human life. He became dead, which if you remember the literal translation is just that. I didn't just die once. That's easy, right? If we could just die, that'd be, problem is dying. He said, I too became dead. Went through the process of dying, which explains his sympathy. He's been through it all, so he understands how we feel. And then we saw his empathy. I am the first and the last who is dead and has come to life. I know, present tense. He moves from past, past tense to present tense. I've not just been there in the past. I know. I've been there. I know your, right now your tribulation, and he specifies what they're going through, and your poverty, and the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What does it mean that he knows? Sympathy says, I care about your suffering. That's one kind of knowing. Empathy goes deeper. It it says, I really know. I feel your suffering. Sympathy cares about their feelings, which he does. But he goes far deeper. He says, I feel your feelings. First, we saw that Christ's sympathy comes from his uh, remembrance of his uh, lot in life. Then we saw that his empathy comes from his direct experience right now of your lot in life. The difficulties of your life are not like just this distant memory from way back when he was on planet Earth. No, the difficulties of your life are uh, a direct experience for him. We saw this as a fundamental doctrine of scripture that in all our affliction he is afflicted. The doctrine of his omniscience. So with the suffering church, Christ starts with a reminder of his sovereignty. Then he gives them like this infusion of uh, sympathy and empathy. But then, as we'll see this week, he returns to his sovereignty. So putting our passage for today in, our verse for today in its near context, overall what they're getting and what we're getting is this. It's a powerful recipe for some pretty deep comfort and that is sympathy and empathy couched on both sides by his sovereignty. Which is a pretty good antidote against becoming another ambo. Sovereignty, sympathy, empathy, sovereignty. Which is what he goes back to now starting in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He's telling them, 
if you think about it, what he's saying here is that the worst of the worst is going to be realized. You're going to die, some of you. And some of them were tortured. But listen to how he says it. The way he spells it out is like this sovereign balm. I wish we could, I could read it in the Greek because it's much more obvious there. And he, he speaks with this marble calm of a rock. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He tells them, again, that it's gonna be a worst case scenario here when it comes to your fear of the future. But it's all right because we feel the spirit of God's providence here, the sovereign calm of the one who is the first and the last. Something, uh, that's what we feel. But what we actually hear is this, something that backs it up. And that is first, point A in your notes, the fact of his providence. Again, verse 10, behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. And then he goes on to say that it's only going to be 10 days. That is, he knows, he's got it all planned how long it's going to last. 10 is a symbol for something. We're not sure quite what. But the idea is, I'm, I got this. Up to the point of saying, it's just 10 days. He's predicting the future because, of course, he knows the future and his Sovereign calm is reinforced by a sovereign prediction that reveals a plan. Ten days. They don't know what that means, but he's got it. He says it in just a few words. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Uh, Behold that you will be tested. You have tribulation for ten days. I know where you're going. I know what Satan is planning I know what I'm doing. You get the feeling that Satan himself is just like, and it's true, he's just this black pawn in his plan. Right? It's a prediction about the future that's in his hands. And if you dial down and tune in, and if you have ears and a heart, ears to hear and a heart to feel what the Spirit is saying to this church, You can't help but say, he's got it. He knows. He knows the future because he holds the future and that includes the devil. If you let it really sink in all together here, it's like he breaks through the fog and all it takes is a word and suddenly you get your bearings and it's like you're flying through this storm without instruments, you're flying blind uh, and And sometimes that's the way you literally become. Some of you are literally losing your sight. You're flying blind. And nothing changes around you, but you don't know whether you're right side up or upside down, as often happens when you're flying in a storm, or which way you're going. Even though you've just been told it's only going to get worse, things are completely out of control, but now you know who's in charge. We need to dial down and tune in like that every day to his spirit through his word. In the face of the evidence, 
You're in the arms of his providence. And so all of it is false evidence. So we have first the fact of his providence. It comes to us through the truth of his word and through his spirit. But how do you make it practical? Well, this moves us from the fact of his providence to what you might call the, and it really is the finesse of his providence. Again, verse 10. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested. He's saying, under and through it all, I've got an agenda. That you may be tested. Testing is a work of God. It's a work of God through which he refines us. But notice who he gets to do his work. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested. This is the finesse of his providence where he works hand in glove, you know, with no less than the object of our greatest fear to bring about the greatest good. It's the evil of the tribulation, but it's the good of the testing where we come out refined like fire, by fire. Such finesse. You see it all over the place in the scripture from the beginning to the end. It's his way from the beginning of the end of working his sovereignty. It's like what Daniel said about the last days. He said that many will be purified, purged, and refined. That's Daniel 12.10. And that's uh, all the way through Revelation. But then he goes on to say that the wicked will act wickedly and none of the wicked will understand. That is, they'll not understand that they're a pawn in my hand. That is, God will use the wicked, he's saying here in Daniel, to refine the righteous, but they won't understand that they're doing his work. All due to the finesse of his providence. Joseph, you meant it for evil. Famous passage, he said to his brothers. God meant it for good. Genesis 45, 26. You see this all the way to the worst of the evils in the history of humanity, which is now the pattern of our lives, which gives us to the heart of it all, really. And it's in Acts chapter 2, some of my favorite verses. Where he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, as is Peter, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself known. This man, and here it is, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, it's all his doing in his sovereignty. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men who put him to death. The finesse of his providence is that even godless men, even Satan, are his pawns. And he always turns evil into good. And the greater the evil, the greater the good. The greater the pain, the greater the gain. The greater the, the guts, the greater the glory. And a lot of you are really gutsy by his power. Worse is better in God's economy 
to the point that the worst of the worst, the cross at Calvary, is the best of the best. Therefore, the worst of the worst, even, is false evidence appearing real. Back to our passage for today. On one hand, we have hard evidence, you know, that justifies our fears. The devil's about to cast some of you into prison. But on the other hand, it's false evidence because it's in his sovereign hand that you may be tested for 10 days. You could take that phrase, the devil is about to, or life is about to, or a friend is about to, and you could put anything after it. You could take any circumstance and prove his providence through it with great finesse if you're just patient enough. Because there is nothing that you go through that he will not uh, work through. We've all experienced it. And so uh, let me just give you a few modern day examples from Joseph to today. All of you have gone through this, I'm sure, if you know Christ as your Savior. You've seen it. We just need to be reminded of it. You may have heard the story about a shipwrecked man who was in the middle of nowhere. He cries out to God, you know, to save him every day. And he managed to build this rough little hut where he put the few things that he was able to salvage from the wreck. Meant everything to him. One day he was out searching for food, came back without finding anything. And he, he found, when he came back, he saw this smoke and then he turned the corner uh, around the beach and his hut was going up in flames. The worst of the heaven, all, the worst had happened. The, all was lost. Some answer to prayer. Where is God in all this? Well, early the next day, there was a ship in the harbor. And when he asked the captain how he found him, he said, well, we saw your smoke signal. <laughs> there it is, right? That's the fingerprint that's all over our lives. Again, you can really take this phrase, the devil is about to, and put anything after it, any circumstance, to prove the providence of the one who's the first and the last with great finesse. Of course, the circumstance here is being in prison. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison. And where our culture is going, I wouldn't be at all surprised if that's what happens to Christians. It's all going over on all over the world like never before. So can he even do it through prison? <laughs> Let me give you two illustrations of his working through the particular circumstance of prison like happened at Smyrna. And I quote, bless you prison. This is from Alexander Solzhenitsyn from his famous The Gulag Archipelago. It was famous when I was in high school and I underlined it and kept it to this day. Bless you, prison, for it was there I discovered that the meaning of this earthly existence lies not, as we have grown used to thinking, in prospering, the American dream, but in the development of the soul. We may need prison. Or this one, I thank you, rusty prison grating. This is Ratushinskaya, I think that's how you pronounce it, a Russian Christian poet who is in prison for seven years of hard labor because of her faith. 
She put it into the form of a rhyme and a song, and it won't come across in translation, but this is it. I thank you, rusty prison grating, and you sharp, glinting bayonet blades, for you have given me more wisdom than learning over decades. Behold, the devil is about to fill in the blank, whatever it is, and you will be able to say in the end two things about it. One, God will work a greater good through it to the point that someday you will be blessing it, even rusty prison gates. Therefore, too, it's false evidence appearing real. Thanks to the finesse of his providence, thanks to the pattern of the cross. As we sang, bane and blessing, pain and pleasure by the cross are sanctified. And so, you don't have to be an ambo or like the disciples up there. But when you are, he understands. He'll have to kind of rebuke us, O ye of little faith, like I've had to do myself many times over the years. But still, he comes through. Next time, we'll move from the fact of his providence and the finesse of his providence to the fruit of his providence. I'll give you a crown of life through it all. We'll unpack what that means. But in the meantime, we can rest in him, all because he is our rock. So why don't we all stand and sing that together?
So by the power of his word through his spirit, all together right now we are standing on that rock. And so we can go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.